redemptive plan. And then these past couple of weeks, we've taken sort of a thematic break from that to see the great war that goes on backstage of redemptive history shown in Revelation 12. And then also the great arrival that comes along with it at the front of the stage in Matthew 2. And this morning, we actually are going to return to Matthew 1 and take a step back again in time a bit to see just what that genealogy brought to pass. And so on page 6 of your bulletin, you can follow along as we read Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would move among us and enable us to understand your word, Lord. We pray that even as churches gather around our city, anticipating Christmas, anticipating the coming of Jesus and celebrating that great news that you would enable all of us to believe anew and recognize this gospel for our lives, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. In September of my sixth grade year, I can remember walking the halls of the middle school, a new school to me and all the other sixth graders from the other elementary schools, finding our way around in that big new building, to us, new anyway, and making my way to PE class for the first time, where in the coach's office, as I was checking in, I met the eighth grade basketball coach. And he looked at me, having heard my name from the role, and he smiled, and he said, You're Chuck Peters' brother. I knew exactly what he was thinking about as I said, Yes, sir, I am Chuck Peters' brother. He sized me up from head to toe, and his eyes were gleaming. I could tell what he was thinking, because I, at 5 feet 10 inches, was by far the tallest kid in sixth grade. And my brother at six feet four inches, was by far the tallest kid in the eighth grade. And this basketball coach was thinking, the younger one's going to be even taller. This is good news for the basketball team. I can look forward for the next two years to this superstar coming along. I knew exactly what he was thinking. And I tried hard, I will tell you, to fulfill those expectations over the next couple of years, but the genes just weren't quite there. And I'm not yet 6'4". 
Maybe one day I will be. Sometimes expectations are bigger than the one who carries them. Matthew knows something about that in this gospel. His gospel, in particular, is a gospel of expectations. Matthew, you may know this, some 50 times quotes from the Old Testament. Matthew wanted his readers, his Jewish readers in particular, to recognize how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Twelve times, in fact, throughout his gospel, you read these words, This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. You heard it just a moment ago as well. There are lots and lots and lots of expectations that are fulfilled in the life of Christ. And maybe the greatest of all of them is the first one that Matthew reports. There's this little prophecy in Isaiah's seventh chapter that we love at Christmas time, and, and rightly so. The prophecy of Emmanuel, God with us. But, you know, in the nostalgia of Christmas time, we often forget the rest of the story, as it were, which is this. From the very moment of the fall in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, way, way back, from the very moment of the fall, there was an infinite separation between God and man, an infinite divide between the holiness of the righteous God and the total depravity of sinful man. But from that moment, God's plan to redeem, His plan to restore, which He'd known of for all eternity, began to take shape. His plan to be with His people again, to erase the separation, to overcome the divide, His plan to do all those things began to flow. And it's shown in the Old Testament promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and to all of Israel after them, and to you and to me today. And that promise is this, again and again in the Old Testament you hear it. I will put my dwelling place, my tabernacle, he says, my tent, the place where I live, I will put my dwelling place among you. I will live with you. And I will walk with you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's a promise that God preserved, as he showed us throughout the genealogy that Matthew gave of Jesus, and it's a promise that's fulfilled with the birth of Jesus, and it's a promise that, let's be honest, you and I still struggle to believe the truth of. God with us. God is with us. It can be a very hard truth to believe, and that's why we have this table in front of me here in front of you. That's why we come to the Lord's Supper, because this gospel is a hard truth to believe, and there are a lot of reasons why it's hard to believe. One of those is the natural impossibility of how it came to be. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, Matthew tells us. He's already used this word, in the first chapter of his gospel. We read it a few weeks ago. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The the word birth in our Bible is the word genesis. 
genealogy. The genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He said it in verse 1, a record of the genealogy, the genesis of Jesus Christ. He wants us to know it's not just the birth of a baby that happened, but the genesis of the God-man. The genesis of our Redeemer. And Matthew has prepared his readers for this unique genesis in that genealogy. Do you remember some of the details of it? Matthew included in that genealogy four women, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. In addition to Mary, who we have this morning, those four women, all of whom came to be with child, pregnant in unusual, at least, if not completely improper ways. You remember some of the stories there. Tamar came to be pregnant through deception. And Rahab came to be pregnant eventually. We don't get the story in the Bible, but she was a recovered prostitute. Ruth came to be pregnant as a widow from another country entirely, Moab. And Bathsheba came to be pregnant, as we know the famous, infamous story of David, She came to be pregnant, as the proverb suggests, stolen water is sweet. That's how those four came to be with child. And Matthew would not have even had to remind his Jewish readers of the circumstances that surrounded Abraham and Isaac. You you remember that famous story. Sarah, who was not only barren throughout all of her many decades, but who had many, many, many decades. In her 90s, she became pregnant. She was barren and she was old, and yet she became pregnant. From early on in this genesis of Jesus, God is demonstrating to us one crucial truth, and that's this. No man can accomplish what God alone can decree. No man can accomplish what God alone can decree. We read Matthew's words, Mary was birthed, uh, betrothed to Joseph, and before they became together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. She was betrothed to Joseph. This betrothal in in the the early days, the the first century of of Judaism, you may know, was a year-long engagement. It was different than the sort of, of marriage engagement that we think of today. It was much more serious. And over the course of a year, a couple would prepare for their marriage together. They were actually legally considered bound to one another. While they weren't yet technically husband and wife, they were bound to one another. No physical consummation having taken place, and yet the breakup of such relationship would require legal proceedings. And now Mary's pregnant. It's a natural impossibility. There's no way on earth that it could have happened. You know it. And so we often confess in the Apostles' Creed the words. You know the words. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. So do you find that hard to believe? I mean, every time we come to Christmas season, we remember that anew. And think of the virgin birth. Do you really believe that that could happen? Do you you find it hard to believe that a woman in actual time and space of history 
before, long, long before the marvels of modern medicine could actually become pregnant without the normal and natural assistance of a man. Do you really believe that that could be? It's hard to believe, isn't it? But it had to be so. It had to be the way in which God conducted His redemptive plan. He had to do it this way because only the righteousness of God in the flesh of man could fulfill the promise of redemption. It's the only way that God's plan could be unfolded. We don't know exactly how God accomplished this remarkable thing. We don't know the genetics of it, the science of it, the mathematics in the dark of a virgin womb that allowed for this to come to be. But, you know, if God did show you the mathematical equation of how it came to be, do you think you really could follow the math? It's beyond us to even begin to comprehend how God could do such a thing. But the point is this. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And this was not only his natural birth, but the genesis of a redeemer. The one who alone could accomplish what God required and who alone could provide what man needed. And to do it, the eternal logos of God took on the humility of human flesh. And we all, I think, have some little sense of what that's like, that, that humiliation of Jesus. For the past few weeks, I've been driving a rental car. One of our cars, the minivan, as it happens, has been in the shop for three weeks to be repaired from an encounter with a deer. And once we figured out how long it was going to be, a few weeks, that we were going to need a rental car, so we went to get one, and Enterprise Rental Car had one car available for us. It was a Dodge Charger. 300 horsepower of muscle car. And I think when Mary saw the rental car option, she said in her heart, I'm not driving that. And I said in my heart, I'd be happy to drive that. And for three weeks, I've gotten to drive around in the, the manly, bold lines of a Dodge Charger muscle car. Our kids, along with their cousins, nicknamed it the Beast. They enjoyed riding in the muscle car because that thing could go from zero to 60 in negative two seconds. And it was a lot of fun until two days ago when the dealer called to say, your car's ready, it's time to come pick it up. We had to take the muscle car back to the rental and leave it there, and I'm now relegated to my old 13-year-old Honda Accord. The incarnation had to have felt something like this. It had to have felt something like this to take on the flesh of not just a man, but think about it, the flesh of an embryo in the womb in the darkness of Mary's virgin womb. Why would Jesus begin like this? Why would God send his Redeemer, not just as a grown man to do the job of a man, but as a newly conceived embryo? Why would he do that? It's because he came to restore you from the ground up. 
He came to restore every part of you from every part of your life. Wherever you've been, He's been there, but without sin. Whatever stage of life you've experienced temptation in from childhood to adulthood, He's been there, but without sin. He came to restore you from the ground up because you were conceived in sin. As David said in Psalm 51, reflecting on his own problems, I was conceived in sin. It's not, to be clear, the act of conception that was the sin. That's not the reason for the virgin birth, by the way. It's not that the act of conception was somehow tainted and wrong. That's a beautiful creation of God himself. That's not the reason for the virgin birth. It's not the act of conception that was sinful, but rather the fruit of conception that is sinful. And only God's sovereign action can restore it. And isn't that, after all, the gospel? When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive in Christ Jesus, Paul says. You know, if you don't believe, really, if you don't believe that the Holy Spirit can bring life from a virgin womb, then how can you possibly believe that the Holy Spirit can bring life to a dead soul? The gospel itself is a natural impossibility. It's hard to believe, and so you need the communion table. You need to come to this table and hold the bread in your hands and feel the wine on your tongue and believe. Because this gospel is hard to believe, not just because of its natural impossibility, but also because of the royal significance that it purports to offer. Joseph is slapped with some hard news in this story, isn't he? As we read through it, you recognize Joseph's Joseph's awkward sort of situation here. He's begun to consider his options. Now, verse 20, Matthew tells us, after Joseph had considered this, that is, divorce from Mary... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Now, Joseph had a dream. I don't think there's any coincidence to this. You've had dreams before. I know sometimes you can't remember your dreams or you do remember them and you can't make any sense of them. I've had dreams like that before. I was reminded of one just this week seeing a television commercial for the goldfish graham crackers that our kids enjoy in worship training back in the hallway there. One time, years ago, I had a dream that I was sitting on a boat. I don't know what I was doing, maybe getting ready to go water skiing or something. And the water was clear, and I didn't get in the water because I noticed the the boat was surrounded by goldfish, not the kind that are in your tank at home, but the crackers in the box. And they were all wearing sunglasses. I'm sure it was from the commercial where they're wearing sunglasses, but I don't know why I dreamed that. Do you ever know why you dream what you dream? Joseph's dreams had to confuse him, I'm sure, at times. Here in Matthew 1 and 2, you know, dreams, have you noticed? We've been in it a couple of times lately. Dreams are frequent here in these first two chapters of Matthew's narrative. Five times the Lord uses dreams to communicate with his people. One of them is attributed to the wise men who have a dream, and they're warned to not return to Herod, so they go back to their country by another way. The other four are Joseph's dreams. 
And I don't think there's any coincidence. I think this Joseph is causing us to remember the Joseph of Genesis who also had dreams by which God led him in his redemptive plan. This Joseph is having dreams and he's considering divorce. And you can understand why, I think. Luke's gospel account gives a different perspective on this same story. Luke gives us the story from Mary's perspective. Matthew from Joseph's perspective. And if you put the two together, you begin to understand the timeline. Luke tells us that Mary had an angel visit her and tell her what was going to happen, along with her own amazing and miraculous conception. Her relative Elizabeth was pregnant, the angel told her, and was already in her sixth month. Elizabeth was older, much older, and like Sarah had been, was barren, unable to have children. And the angel told Mary, your relative Elizabeth is pregnant. In three months, she's going to have a baby. That baby would be John the Baptist. And so Luke tells us that Mary got up and traveled to go and see her relative Elizabeth. And she stayed with her for three months, presumably until John, that baby, was born. And then she went home. And when she returned, her now three-month pregnancy had to be beginning to become somewhat obvious. And you can imagine the scene. She returned home. Joseph, honey, I haven't seen you in three months. I've been with my relative Elizabeth. And Joseph, you're not going to believe what just happened. Elizabeth, you remember the one who has been barren, hasn't had children, and wanted to? She just gave birth to a child. Joseph, it's amazing. You won't believe it. Now, you can imagine Joseph kind of taking this in with a sideways glance. Not sure I believe that, but Mary, what I'm more concerned about is the pooch in your own belly. Where did that come from? Oh, honey, listen, that's from the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine the scene? I mean, you can understand why Joseph is beginning to consider divorce. He had to have said, yeah, right, sure. I mean, okay, the Holy Spirit. And then he goes and gets on the phone with his poker buddies. Guys, I need some help. You're not going to believe what Mary said to me. This is the woman I'm supposed to marry. Joseph was a simple carpenter, probably. He was a nobody in Israel. But Matthew tells us he's a righteous man, and he tried to do what was right and good. That's what he wanted to do. But now he's pondering how he might do that. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear. Now, how many of his relatives or poker buddies do you think ever referred to him as Son of David? Here he was, an ordinary carpenter, a nobody in a nowhere town. I bet none of them ever referred to Joseph as Son of David. I mean, at this point in redemptive history, it's been some thousand years since David was king. And David had a number of children. And surely by now, generation after generation after generation later, there are probably a number of Jews with David's blood in them. But then the angel comes to Joseph and says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. If in Jesus God is actually with us, then the gospel offers you such royal significance that it may be so hard to believe it seems like a dream. I read an article this past week that referred to a TV commercial 
for a video game. It shows a young man, 20-something, sitting at his desk at work in a high-rise office building, floor-to-ceiling window behind him, land, uh, skyline in the background. It's late in the day, and he obviously doesn't want to be there working after hours. The custodial crew is finishing its vacuuming and leaving his office, and he's flipping through paperwork, apparently dejected and concerned that his life doesn't matter anymore, bored with everything. And he sees on the corner of his desk an old Star Wars action figure, one that he had as a child. He's got it there as a decoration, and he picks it up and begins to kind of daydream, and he begins to reminisce of his childhood when the adventures of him and his best buddy seemed to really matter. And then all of a sudden his desk begins to shake and rumble. And he hears the thunder of jet engines outside his window. He turns and looks, and there hovering outside of his office window is an X-wing fighter with his best childhood friend sitting in the cockpit, beckoning to him. And then another X-Wing fighter rises up right in front of his window, empty with cockpit open. And he takes his chair and bashes the window open, jumps out. He's probably 20 stories above the ground. Jumps into the X-Wing fighter and dashes off with his friend in an adventure to destroy the Empire. If only we could leave behind the dullness of adulthood, right? Just like that. All of these things you can do, too, in the Star Wars Battlefront video game. If only we could do such things in real life, right? And leave behind the ordinariness of the things that just don't seem to matter and get on to significant adventures. Don't you, don't you think that way sometimes? The article goes on to refer to C.S. Lewis and his definition of the word nostalgia. Lewis wrote this. He said, nostalgia, I think is our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside. Doesn't that describe you at times? Do you ever wonder when your life will actually start? Do you ever wonder if the expectations that were laid on you as a child, the ones that you've put aside with your daydreams, do you ever wonder if those expectations somehow might someday be actually fulfilled? It's hard to believe sometimes that you actually matter, isn't it? Sometimes that's a real struggle. It's hard to believe that your life has any real significance. Just a week and a half ago, some of you, some of us, had a good friend who took his own life. Bill Miller was, was a friend of many of ours, a friend of mine, certainly, and, and he took his own life believing the lies of depression that told him that the world would be better off without him. It is not true. In Christ, the gospel tells you that you are sons and daughters of a king, Jesus has fulfilled the great expectations, all of them, and has given you a role to play in His redeeming kingdom come. He's given you gifts and opportunities and joys and struggles with which to contribute to His kingdom that has come and is coming. 
And it's a royal heritage. Is it hard to believe? Is it hard for you to grasp that and to, to digest the reality of that truth? Then you need to come to the communion table. You need to come and hold the bread in your hands and taste the wine on your lips and believe that God has granted to you in his gospel this royal significance. It's hard to believe because of the natural impossibility from which it comes. It's hard to believe because of the royal significance that seems too good to be true. And it's hard to believe as well because of the divine protection that it must necessarily include. Matthew wants his readers to know the purpose of this strange event, this virgin birth. He wants his readers, his Jewish readers, he wants for you and me to understand the significance of what's happening here. And so he draws our attention to that nostalgic little prophecy from Isaiah's seventh chapter. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now that prophecy came down some 700 years before Jesus was born. And it came by way of Isaiah to a king, Ahaz of Judah. You heard it earlier in our worship service. Ahaz was a bad king. He was an evil man. Although he was the king of Judah, he was an evil king occupying a very honored throne, the throne of Judah. In fact, Ahaz makes his way into that genealogy that Matthew wrote about in, earlier in this chapter. Ahaz was an evil king, and at the time that this prophecy came down to him through Isaiah, there were two rival kings threatening Ahaz's reign in Judah. And God displayed his grace to this evil king who occupied an honored throne, by sending Isaiah to him, and Isaiah said to Ahaz this. He said, don't fear, Ahaz. Don't let your heart be faint because of these two rival kings. Their intention will not stand. As for you, Ahaz, be firm in faith. Trust in God. In fact, Ahaz... God has told me to ask of you what sign you would like for him to bring to you. Tell me, and God will give you a sign, Ahaz, to increase your faith to believe that God will protect you. And you heard what Ahaz said earlier when it was read. Ahaz refused. Ahaz said, I don't need your protection. He said it was spiritual language. I don't want to put the Lord to the test. What he meant was, I don't need your protection. Prophet, go away. Let me be. I'm king. I can take care of my own. And Isaiah's words back to him then, of course, are, well then, God himself will give you a sign, Ahaz. Emmanuel, a virgin, shall conceive and bear a son. And before that boy knows the difference between good and evil, these two kings that you're so concerned about will be long gone. But you, Ahaz, refused God's protection, and so much worse will come. The king of Assyria will be knocking on your door. Now that prophecy 
had surely imminent outcomes in Ahaz's day. We don't know exactly how it came to be that some young woman there had a child, and before that child grew to be two or three years old, those two kings that threatened Ahaz were gone, and by that time, the king of Assyria lived next door. For Ahaz, that prophecy had imminent outcomes, but it was also an expectation awaiting a much greater fulfillment. Emmanuel, God with you, if not to bless, then to curse, if not to protect, then to condemn, an expectation fulfilled in the genesis of the God-man who would live and die and rise again to extend the protection of his righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, the unplanned pregnancy of Matthew chapter 1 had long been planned. It had been long planned. In fact, God's plan to redeem had begun not when a star appeared in the east to some wise men, but rather before there was a single star in the sky. Even Isaiah's prophecy, looking forward as it did, was actually longing to go back. Do you recognize that? He was actually longing to go back, longing with nostalgia to return to the garden to walk with God in the cool of the day. But the only way to get there was to not go back, but rather to go forward to the dawning of Emmanuel. To the dawning of Emmanuel. The enemy is knocking on the door. Even now, the enemy is knocking on the door. We've seen him from backstage. He's knocking on the door. He's mocking. He's accusing. He's pointing fingers. But the gospel says, do not fear. That danger will come to nothing. God has given you a sign so that you might believe it. And it's right there in front of you on the table. God has given you a sign in bread and wine that you might believe. So as you come to the table this morning, there's, there's a lot of mystery here. We know that. There's a lot of mystery there at the table, and it's hard to believe. But bread and wine are not hard to believe, and they're very simple to receive. He has washed away your sin, and he has covered you with the protection of his righteousness. For many reasons, the gospel is hard to believe. There are lots of them, aren't there? For many reasons, it's hard to believe. Our expectations are so high that we hardly expect that it could be real. But God has fulfilled them all. Emmanuel, God is with us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, O Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith to believe. Would you make us able to trust you, Lord, that you have called us to belong to yourself and that you are indeed with us in Jesus and by your Spirit, we pray in his name. Amen.